Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today we will be continuing the book review of Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. First things first, Happy New Year! I hope you all had a lovely holiday. The husband and I had a quiet Christmas at home with all the animals. Um, It just wasn't safe or advisable to travel, so we were unable to visit his family as we did last year. Um, We had a very lovely Christmas previously in Florida, but we did Skype with them and we caught up. And then on Boxing Day, I spoke to my mum and my brother, which was lovely. My mum actually shipped me a couple of items all the way from England, which was very kind of her, and I was very grateful to receive them. One is a cross stitch of a whippet face, which is absolutely beautiful, and I'm going to have it framed. And the other is a sleeveless blouse with bees on it. So um, I was very delighted for that. I'm looking forward to wearing it in the spring. And when I opened up the package, it smelled like my mum's perfume, which made me really nostalgic and a little homesick. And I am hoping very much that as the vaccine rolls out, that uh, maybe traveling is going to happen later this year and either she can come see me or I can go out and see her. That would be a really lovely thing. We don't really celebrate New Year's Eve here in terms of staying up to do the countdown or going out to parties before the pandemic. Um, But we stayed in and um, cracked open some various alcohol bottles and just had a really relaxing night at home. I actually had one of those crystal clear moments where I just felt so present and grateful for this house and property and all the animals that we filled our lives with. I was curled up on the love seat with all three puppies. I was on my second martini reading a really good book that I was determined to finish by midnight and it was just perfect. It was absolutely wonderful. So I hope all of you had the chance to relax and maybe practice a little self-care. Maybe you made your favourite drink or also curled up with a book or watched some movies. I just hope you had a good time and that you are ready for 2021. So as always, I'll do a couple of homestead updates before we get on to chapter two of Honeybee Democracy. Right before the new year, in that spot just between you've celebrated Christmas and you're not quite at New Year's Eve, in that little span of days, we were off to the vet with Luna, my female whippet. She has had this tiny sebaceous cyst on the side of her neck that was about the size of a grain of rice. And every now and then it would open up almost like a a black head or a pimple and it would start expressing. And she's had it for so long that we're just sort of used to when we see it start to open up, we kind of squeeze out the contents and then it's done until it comes back because as a cyst it has a little sac or a capsule under the skin and it doesn't matter how much you express it until you remove that capsule it's always going to refill and so we'd made a note of where it was 
And the plan was that she is going to be having a dental cleaning in the spring, which they put her under anesthesia for. And so I was going to ask the vet to just go in and remove that cyst while she is under anesthesia. So it wasn't anything we were super concerned about. Well, right after Christmas, I noticed that this tiny rice-sized cyst was now very swollen and the area was red and I was concerned that it had become infected. And by the next day, it was even more angry looking. It was obviously painful. So we applied like hot compresses throughout that evening. And the plan was to call the vet first thing in the morning. Well, the following morning, literally as soon as we woke up and I was getting ready to call the vet, we realized that it had spontaneously ruptured and was bleeding everywhere. So not to be too gross, but there wasn't a lot of pus or signs of infection. For whatever reason, it seemed to have mainly filled with blood. So we cleaned up the area. I was able to get a lunchtime appointment and we popped off for that. So at the vet, it was pretty straightforward. They just shaved the area, they gave it a proper cleaning and they sent me home with some low dose antibiotics for 10 days. The good news was that it had drained well on its own and the vet didn't have to like lance it or dig in there or do anything painful. It scabbed over within about 24 hours. She still has a scab on there. It's healing really well. The swelling went down almost instantly. And so now the plan is when that course of antibiotics is up, The issue will be, does it start filling again and become quite large? Will it become infected again? If that's the case, she will be going right back in under anesthesia. They'll remove it surgically and while she's under, we'll have her teeth cleaned. However, if when everything has gone, the scabs heal, the antibiotics are done, we can just feel that little grain of rice again and it doesn't get any larger it doesn't become inflamed then we can wait until her scheduled tooth cleaning later in the year and just have it taken out then so time will tell as to whether my little muffin is heading back in to the vet not to be outdone by a mammal one of my skinks also needs vet treatment on january 2nd i went to feed all of the pink tongue skinks and i noticed that something was wrong with europa's jaw now europa is one of my breeding females she is probably my favorite actually because she is from the very first litter that i ever produced and her mum dione sadly passed away and europa is just like her mama so i'm very partial to her so i see that there's something going on with her mouth. I gently take her out and I notice that it's swollen up on one side of the jaw. It's the lower jaw and her mouth can't close because of all this swelling. So we very, very gently try and open her mouth and there's something in there. It's either a broken tooth that has almost been pulled out but is still attached or worst case, it's actually potentially a broken jaw. So we stopped examining her we didn't want to risk trying to open her mouth anymore in case it is a broken jaw and we're just exacerbating the problem and of course the exotic vet is closed the whole weekend and won't be back until like Monday morning and although there is an emergency vet here they have the exotic vet on call via phone they don't actually have them there in person 
So I was assessing her and I decided that she could wait until Monday because she was tongue flicking, which is how they examine their world. And it's also how they eat and drink. So she could still eat, she could still drink. She is still drinking. This also means that there's no nerve damage going in there. So if there was a break, it hasn't affected uh, function of her tongue. There was no bleeding. There was no signs of pus. And actually after the first night, the swelling went down by 50% and has been at kind of that level since. So what I've done is I've put her into what I call a hospital tank. And this is basically just a regular glass tank where I put her on paper towels instead of like a particular substrate so that there's no risk of things getting into the wound or getting into her mouth and causing more issues. I also put it somewhere quiet and warm and I cover up as much of that enclosure as I can just to reduce stress. So I have been checking on her since then. She's doing well, she's drinking, she's bright eyed, all of that's good. So of course I call the vet first thing on Monday and the exotic vet that I like, his name is Dr. Riggs, he doesn't have an appointment until Friday and that's just too long to wait. So I asked them if the other vets there, like my uh, avian vet, Dr. Aldair works at the same practice. And I said, look, do they have exotic reptile experience? And they said that they do. And I decided that I would risk it in the sense that you know, I don't really trust anyone with my reptiles as much as I trust Dr. Riggs, but he's physically going to be there at the surgery. He just wasn't available until Friday. So I figured that worst case scenario, if her jaw needs surgical repair, then they can have Dr. Riggs do it. He is their main exotic vet there. So anyway, I am recording this on the 5th of January. I The earliest appointment I could get is this afternoon uh, slash evening. And so fingers crossed, I will have good news to share in two weeks when I record again. I am really, really hoping that it's something that we can treat with antibiotics and painkillers and just kind of let it, um, the, like, let the swelling go down and any infection dissipate worst case scenario she might have to have her jaw wired uh where they just kind of it's almost like a splint on the side of the jaw um we'll just have to see I am nervous for her but she's holding on she's looking strong so fingers crossed that everything will be okay and then just to continue the kind of animal news with not necessarily great news, but like Pepper Jack the rooster has frostbite on his comb. And this isn't entirely surprising. Um, he has a really big showy comb. These combs are most at risk during very cold weather. And we have had some bouts of extremely cold weather, including a storm. But the good news is that it's mild frostbite. And the area actually looks pretty good. So I am optimistic that he's not going to lose any of his comb from this damage. Right now, I'm not doing anything with it. Um, the skin is very delicate because of the frostbite. And I don't want to risk damaging it when I catch him or try and treat it. He's not really tame. He does not like to be touched. I'm worried that I could rip the delicate skin and cause a much bigger issue. If he was tame, I might just put a salve on it, you know, something like an ointment, uh, just to kind of encourage blood flow to the area and maybe soothe any pain. But 
since he's not, it's not at that stage where it requires treatment. If the skin cracks open, then I will have to wrestle him down and apply some kind of like antibiotic treatment and monitor the healing more carefully with regular inspections. But for right now, I'm just keeping an eye on it. It's looking really good. It's looking like the comb's going to be okay. And it's looking like it's sort of surface skin damage only. So fingers crossed for him to heal as well. And hopefully this is all of the animal sickness news that I will have to share in future because, oh, guys, I really do not want to be doing more of this. But, you know, when your life is filled with lots of different animals, these things happen. In sort of home news, we managed to time having our septic company come out right when the ground thawed between storms which was perfect timing. Um, I had them out because I've, I'd noticed that around the access points of our septic system, the ground was very, very wet. And we were sort of noticing out there as well, kind of the smell of like drains, not sewage, but like just a drain smell. So I called my company, I explained what was happening. They had someone out within two days. They immediately identified the problem. Our pump had died. So basically our septic system was relying on gravity to move things through and I guess we're lucky because the service guys were really surprised that we hadn't had like any of the drains back up or any gross stuff like that so um but then again we you know we're on a double tank system and there's just the two of us here so it's it's not really being worked that hard so they came in they fixed that they replaced the pump they gave us some recommendations about having like the pump system area cleaned which we're going to schedule and everything was fixed I noticed that the sort of sogginess went down really fast and I'm really 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 glad that we had it done when we did because not long after we had a lot of rain and slightly warmer temps so all of the snow melted on top of the heavy rainfall so the back garden flooded as it's wont to do my drainage trench does become overwhelmed when there's just that much water. And I really don't want to think about what would have happened if all of that groundwater had gone into a septic system that was relying purely on gravity to move things through. So thank goodness we got that done when we did. We also got the final quote done on the whole house generator that we've been looking into. It did end up being more than we expected in the sense that I had forgotten that when we had the new furnaces and the new air conditioning put in that we had been told that we'd maxed out our electrical system and that if we wanted to add anything else large to the house, we were going to need to upgrade what we had. So obviously that was one of the first things they noticed when they came out. So we're having like an electrical upgrade done, bigger breakers put on. Um, I'm having a surge, a whole house surge protector added at the same time. We've basically just sort of gone all out with it. And we do need a large generator. This is a relatively big property. We have, you know, two furnaces, two air conditioning units. And we have so many reptiles, which all of them have at least one light. Some of them have three lights per tank. So we just use a lot more electricity than a standard house of this size. So yeah, it's definitely adding up. It is an investment, but um, it's going to be such a great 
thing for us because that last power outage was really unnerving. It went on for much longer than we're used to. We didn't have running water. We couldn't flush the toilets. We had to move all the animals in the middle of the night. It was a nightmare. And also because now if we want to travel during the colder months, I don't have to be panicking that the house could lose power and all my animals get sick or even die, worst case scenario. The new generators out there have Wi-Fi access enabled. So like um, if your house loses power, the generator comes on and it can notify you via Wi-Fi that you've lost power, it's now running, and then you can access it and just keep checking on how things are going, how long the generators run for, all that kind of good stuff. So that's going to be a huge peace of mind for us, and it's going to make traveling when it's cold, and actually even when it's hot, when we really need the air conditioning so the house doesn't overheat, it's just going to be wonderful for us, and we don't travel very often because of all the responsibilities we have with the animals, and I think this is going to give us peace of mind help us with that okay next up is hive updates sorry i'm just gonna take a big glug of lavender chamomile tea okay sorry about that um i am absolutely shattered today i haven't been sleeping well the last couple of days i don't know why i'm gonna blame the change in weather that we've had it's very gray and rainy so i'm just desperately trying to wake up right now okay hive updates so Mid-December, I was able to run out and put more fondant and winter patties on because uh, it was a milder day and it was the last mild day before a, a big cold front was coming through, which in the end involved quite a nasty snowstorm. So I'm very, very grateful I had that opportunity and I seized that opportunity. Now, when I was putting the fondant on I was doing it as quick as possible because even though it was a mild day you know I'm trying not to expose the cluster to cooler weather or cooler temperatures sorry but I did take a quick peek in and the little peek down gave me an idea of where they were clustering in the hive and I have to admit I was very surprised to see that my Saskatraz mother colony which was one of my weakest going into winter was actually very low in the bottom box Whereas other colonies that went into winter stronger and larger already up near the top, having eaten through their lower food stores, which is kind of the reverse of what I expected. Now, it's possible that this is because the Saskatraz colony is much smaller and so they're eating less. But I still do find this interesting because the Saskatraz daughter colony is also relatively low compared to others. And again, it could have been the size of the colony going into winter, but I'm kind of wondering if maybe the Saskatraz colonies, I don't know, maybe they packed more food lower down going in, or maybe they use less food. Maybe they, uh, I, I honestly don't know. I, I, I'm in the dark here, but anyway, I thought it was interesting. So on New Year's Eve, I went out with my stethoscope to see if I could hear the girls in their clusters. Last winter, I had no success doing this. I don't know if it was due to the location of the cluster in the hive and user error because, you know, I don't know. I thought it was just pop the things in your ears, hold the little thing up. It would be fine, but I, I couldn't get it to work. This time I had success. 
And knowing that some of the clusters were further down, others were higher up, helped me, you know, figure out where to listen. And the Sask Saskatraz mother colony was still clustered quite low. I could hear them buzzing away in there. The other colonies are all closer to the top. Some are kind of in the middle box. Some are, you know, right up against the uh, the feeder with the fondant. The nucleus colonies are right up high like that, which isn't surprising because, you know, they're half size colonies. So they have a lot, uh, they have a lot less bees to help them maintain warmth and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, Queen Marker, who is my southern US queen, uh, one of the only remaining original queen that I got from my two nucleus colonies that started this whole beekeeping business of mine, uh, she's actually pretty high. And I'm noting this because I did notice that when they went into winter, they clustered in the middle box. So she's got three boxes on. And usually what would happen is they'll cluster down in the bottom box and they slowly move upwards as they consume their honey storage. This cluster was in the middle box. And I don't know if maybe they ended up using the honey in the bottom box before full winter hit, or maybe there was just more honey in the middle box. And so it seemed like a better place to start. I'm not really sure why they made that decision, but I'm positive that they made it for a survival reason. So I'm very interested in spring to get into this colony and see what's going on in the bottom box. Like, is it possible that they packed it so full of honey down there that they didn't have room to cluster uh, effectively? Because you, they always want to have a little area for potential brood nest in the middle. I don't know. So the colony is still pretty big. It was one of my stronger colonies going in. So based on the buzzing in there, you can definitely hear the size difference. My Saskatraz daughter colony is higher, but not quite at the feeder yet. So I think they're kind of straddled between the uh, lower and top box. This was also a weaker colony going into the winter, but I'm kind of hopeful that this sort of slow progression through the food is, is a good sign. Uh, Caredwin, my Ohio queen, which was my strongest colony, they do sound strong as well. Like you can hear them almost right away. It's the loudest hive. They're really buzzing around there happily in there. It's um, It makes me super happy to listen to them. They're in the middle box now. They also had three boxes and they seem to be doing well. Um, this is the colony that I have the most anxiety about, even though they were the strongest if I lose them, I'm going to be crushed because I just feel like genetically this line has been really, really wonderful and I would be devastated if I lost them. But anyway, going out there on New Year's Eve and getting to hear that all my bees were alive and just kind of hearing them buzzing away in there, it made me super happy. I had a big grin on my face. I might have gotten a little teary eyed listening to them because I just missed them so much. Um, but yeah, that was great. So anyone out there who's considered this, uh, like consider getting a stethoscope to listen to your bees, I would give it a go. Um, you can get affordable stethoscopes through like Amazon or other online sellers. Um, yeah, it was great. It was, it was definitely, uh, fun to do and gave me a little bit of a boost. I also started building my top bar hive. 
I received it as a gift back in July for my birthday and it's it's a complete set so it's all of the lumber has been cut uh, it comes with all the hardware and all you need to do is just pop it together and then paint it so I put the body of it together and realized that it's way bigger than I anticipated and it's now taking up a fair amount of space in my dining room um, and I realized I probably should have waited until we were a little closer to spring whoopsie but I'm still gonna go ahead now that I've really taken up the space I'm gonna go ahead make the lid and then as soon as it's warm enough I will be um, painting everything and then decorating it like I like to do and I'm gonna wait to put the legs on until it's ready to go out and when it's all up and running I will be putting a package into this and I've bought my package. I went with the Carniolan, Carniolan bees. Um, I'm really looking forward to receiving the package. It's so exciting. Last year when I got my Saskatraz queen package, it was snowing when I picked it up and I really hope that doesn't happen this year because I will have a harder time insulating um, the top bar hive. And also when I got that package last year, I had a hive with built out comb that I could just drop them into to give them a head start. With the top bar hive, I don't have that. They will need to build the comb themselves. So fingers crossed, the package arrives during some nice weather. As a kind of random aside, I have been having really vivid dreams involving bees again. And this isn't unusual for me since I started this hobby. I often dream about chickens and bees. Chickens, it's usually I go out and there's extra chickens that have just arrived on my property. <laughs> and I'm always delighted about. Uh, bee dreams are a lot weirder. Um, I often have the same dreams involving bees or it's very similar and it's usually that there's a swarm somewhere in my house that I need to catch and move and it's always somewhere tricky like it's in a air vent or it's I had one dream where there was like an old piano that it somehow got into the old piano um or the other dream I have a lot with bees is I go out onto this large property with these massive ancient trees and in the trees are nests but they're just built on the branches that they're, they're like layers and layers of comb just out there hanging from the branches and they're often shaped in ways that bees don't make comb so they're like complete circles but they're hung like I don't know how to describe it maybe like a chandelier but instead of the layers of like lights and crystals it's bee comb it's beeswax and I'm always filled with excitement in these dreams with plans to get like huge ladders and go up and closely examine them and see if I can move them or hive them. And uh, often in these dreams, the bees are huge, like as big as five inches. And in the dreams when the honeybees are closer to actual size, I often find the queen and she's ginormous. Like she'll be three inches long and you know half an inch around and uh bees are often like black or iridescent and um it's just very similar and odd and I'm just mentioning it because I've, I've mentioned my weird bee dreams before and other beekeepers have said oh my god I thought I was the only one you're not we're all mad here <laughs> and we all dream of bees apparently so as long as these dreams keep me going until spring when I have my actual bees back, I think we will 
get through this okay. All right, so today we are continuing Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley, and we are on chapter two, Life in a Honeybee Colony. Now, I will say that this chapter covers a lot of information that will already be familiar to you. We're going to be going over uh, the bees in a hive, so workers, drones, and the queen, and we're going to discuss their roles a little bit. And then we're also going to be discussing the annual life cycle of the honeybee and what sets it apart from other bee species and just a lot of stuff that you're probably familiar with. Uh, I also noticed that a lot of the information in this chapter was also in the lives of bees that we've covered previously. So I do apologize if this is a little repetitive, but I am doing the review by chapter so we have to include it and also it doesn't hurt to kind of review this information again particularly in light of what we will be learning in later chapters. So chapter two life in a honeybee colony opens with a quote this being an Amazonian or feminine kingdom and this quote comes from the feminine monarchy by Charles Butler which was published in 1609. Apis mellifera, the Western or European honeybee, is one of almost 20,000 bee species throughout the world. And all of these bee species descended from a species of vegetarian wasp that lived some 100 million years ago in the early Cretaceous period. There are bee species today that still have an appearance that is very similar to wasps, to the point where just looking at them out and about, you could easily mistake them for one of their carnivorous cousins. But it's in the behavior between bee and wasp species where we really see the key difference. Almost all wasps today are carnivorous. They prey upon other insects as well as spiders for food. Bees, however, abandoned the carnivorous diet of their earliest ancestors and instead they source their protein from pollen and their carbohydrate needs from nectar. One of the reasons that bees are often fuzzy is that these fine hairs on their body help them collect the small pollen particles which they use for food to feed to their brood and like I said before is the source of their protein. Now wasps will also visit flowers and they do eat nectar but it's the bees that have evolved a strong mutual dependence on flowering plants. Bees seek food, they seek their nourishment from flowers and many flowering plants in turn rely on bees for successful reproduction. While bees are foraging, they pick up pollen grains from the stamens of flowers and they deposit them, well, some of them, on the pistil of other flowers, which is what pollinates them. As Seeley quite succinctly puts it, bees serve as flying penises for plants. So within this large family of bees, like I said, 20,000 species, the honeybee is unique for its social structure. Most bee species are solitary. They build small nests in plant stems or in soft sandy soil. 
And for a solitary bee species, the typical life cycle starts in late spring to early summer, when a mated female emerges from her winter burrow. She will make a multi-chambered nest and she will collect food, which she forms into like a ball of sticky pollen and nectar, and that goes into each chamber. She'll then lay an egg on that little ball of food, and once all the eggs have been laid, she seals the chambers up. So inside that sealed chamber, the hatched larva starts to eat through their food source until their development is complete, at which point they chew themselves free and go out into the world. Now, by the time they emerge, their mother has died. And these newly emerged adults then fly out, they mate, and then the mated females will then repeat this cycle by going into a winter dormancy underground and they start again the following spring. So we can see that a solitary bee species has a relatively short life cycle. It's roughly a year long. This section is called a composite being. In contrast, honeybees live in the thousands, all close together in a nest cavity or one of our managed hives. Most of the colony consists of the female worker bees, and they are all daughters of the fertile queen. Despite being female, worker bees are not capable of reproduction on their own. They have undeveloped ovaries and they will not lay legs, <laughs> lay legs, they will not lay eggs outside of a very specific circumstance. And even then, not all worker bees will develop this ability. Now, real quick, Thomas Seeley doesn't go into what the specific circumstance is, but for anyone listening who might not recall or just doesn't know, if a hive is queenless for an extended period of time and fails to rear new queens, then this lack of queen pheromone seems to allow some worker bees, but not all, to finish developing their reproductive system. But because worker bees are incapable of mating, thereby acquiring sperm to fertilize their eggs, when a worker bee starts laying, all she can produce are drones. So this is sort of a last ditch attempt for the genetics of the colony to survive through the drones. It's kind of like creating hundreds or thousands of sperm and just throwing out in the world and hoping that some of it is able to fertilize an egg, or in this case, a virgin queen, so that genetics of the colony survive. That said, let's quickly move on. So the queen honeybee, who is the fertile aspect of a colony, is much larger than the worker bees, with a distinctive long abdomen and much longer legs. The queen is the reproductive heart of the hive. She lays all the eggs to produce future generations and she can lay as many as 1,500 eggs a day during peak production. Over a single summer, the queen produces about 150,000 eggs, which means she is capable of laying half a million eggs in her two to three year expected lifespan. That's one heck of a lot of bees. When a virgin queen emerges from her cell, 
After a period of a few days where her exoskeleton hardens and her flight muscles develop, she will then go on her mating flight where she will mate with 10 to 20 male honeybees called drones. And during this mating flight, she collects approximately 5 million sperm. This bounty of genetic material is stored in her spermatheca, a spherical organ positioned at the rear of the abdomen behind her ovaries. The queen controls the release of the stored sperm in order to fertilize her eggs. Fertilized eggs produce worker bees, the females. Unfertilized eggs produce drones, the males. For female honeybees or for fertilized honeybee eggs, the cell and the food given to the larva influences whether that bee will be a worker or a queen. A fertilized egg deposited in a standard cell and fed the regular larval food will become a worker bee. A fertilized egg laid into a large cell called a queen cup that is fed nutrient-rich royal jelly will become a queen. To quote Seeley, for the fertilized eggs of bees, food is destiny. Less than 5% of all eggs that a queen lays are unfertilized, aka males. So the male drones, they are large, fuzzy, with big adorable eyes. But those cute eyes are as large as they are for a purpose, and that's to spot the fast-flying virgin queens that the drone is hoping to mate with. Part of a drone's large size is because he has big, well-developed flight muscles that allow him to chase down these queens on their mating flights. Now, inside the hive, drones are lazy. They don't work. They don't help their sisters. They just hang around. They eat food. They beg for more food. And then eventually, or every now and then, they pop out and they look for girls, basically. Drones reach sexual maturity at 12 days of age and at this point they'll start visiting what is called drone congregation areas of which sadly little is still known. Now it's at these areas all these drones they're hanging around and they're waiting for a virgin queen on her mating flight to fly past them at which point they'll give chase and only the fastest drones will successfully mate with her. And just as a side note when a drone mates, he dies. Uh, he doesn't have a stinger. Instead, that is part of his reproductive system. And when he ejaculates, it basically sucks that part of his system out of his body, sucks his guts with him, and he dies. He drops to the earth after his moment of passion. So knowing all this about worker bees, about how the queen functions, and about drones, we can think of a honeybee colony as a society made up of thousands of workers, a single queen and some drones. But it also helps us to understand the biology of a honeybee colony if we consider it as a superorganism, a single living entity that functions as a whole. And honeybees are not the only insects that can be considered a superorganism. There are leafcutter ants, driver ants, and fungus growing termites, just to use a few examples. To quote Seeley, a colony of honeybees is then far more than an aggregation of individuals, it is a composite being that functions as an integrated whole. So let's consider each single colony as a organism that weighs as much as five kilograms or 10 pounds. That's the average weight of a wild honeybee colony. And then we can see that this organism 
it eats, it thermoregulates, and it reproduces. And the unique way in which honeybees live their lives offers certain advantages, such as maintaining a brood nest temperature between 34 to 36 degrees Celsius or 93 to 96 degrees Fahrenheit. And they can do this even when ambient air temperatures outside of the nest range from minus 30 to 50 degrees Celsius or minus 20 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And some of this discussion of thermoregulation, how important this uh, brood nest temperature range is, is discussed in the the lives of bees. And I refer you back to my episode series on that if you'd like to learn more. Now, as to how honeybees can thermoregulate, they can generate heat by isometrically contracting their flight muscles. They also engage in something called colonial breathing. This limits the buildup of CO2 by increasing ventilation. And ventilation is also increased if the colony needs to be cooled. So this is also a part of thermoregulation. Additional benefits include colonial circulation, where heat producing bees place themselves at the center of the brood nest region so that the heat can generate out, while workers on the outskirts of this area where it's a little cooler will then bring into honey bring in honey stores to the working bees to allow them to continue their work of heating bees can also produce something called a colonial fever response and this involves raising the brood nest temperature when exposed to fungal infection and once again this was discussed in details in the lives of bees which was absolutely fascinating if you haven't checked out that book i do recommend that you do so to quote seely here i suggest though that the single best demonstration of the super organismic nature of a honeybee colony is the ability of a honeybee swarm to function as an intelligent decision-making unit when choosing its new home This next section is entitled Unique Annual Cycle. One could ask, why are honeybees so particular when choosing their new home? And simply put, they need to be. And when we examine their life cycle, we can see why, especially in regards to their ability to survive the cold winter months. Now, most bee species will go into a winter dormancy, like we discussed previously about solitary bees. The mated female goes into her underground burrow and she sleeps through the winter. But honeybees, because of their unique social structure, stay awake and thermoregulate. When temperatures start to drop, bees cluster together into a roughly basketball-shaped group with the queen at the centre. The surface temperature of the cluster is maintained above 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a few degrees higher than the worker bee's chill coma threshold. To produce heat, worker bees isometrically contract their flight muscles, which is called shivering. When flying, the honeybee expands energy at a rate of approximately 500 watts per kilogram or 250 watts per pound. To compare this, let's look at an Olympic rowing crew, which expends energy at a rate of 20 watts per kilograms or 10 watts per pound. So we can see how energy intensive flying is for the bees. And this is why 
isometrically contracting these muscles helps generate so much heat. If the bee is not moving, if it's not expending that energy through movement, their energy has to go somewhere and that's through heat transfer. Now, if we consider that only a portion of the clustered bees will actually shiver at maximum intensity, then according to Seeley, we can determine that about four pounds or two kilograms of bees in a cluster generate about 40 watts, which is comparable to a small incandescent bulb. Despite this remarkable ability to thermoregulate, insulation is also a vital consideration when looking at nest locations, because poor insulation would mean faster heat loss, and that means more energy expended, which eventually is going to mean more dead bees, and also going through your stores much faster. Now, occasionally a swarm might nest in the open, and these colonies will inevitably perish during the winter cold. Now, I mentioned fuel, that if a bee has to work really, really hard, it's going to run through fuel faster. And in the case of a honeybee, fuel is honey. On average, 20 kilograms or 44 pounds minimum of honey is needed to successfully overwinter. If you were to take one of your managed hives, put it on a scale and note the weight each week throughout the year, you would see that there is a steady decline over the winter months as the bees consume their honey stores. In Ithaca, New York, Seeley notes that his colonies tend to restock their honey between May 15th and July 15th, which is a period of just 60, 60 days. We can see then that a large amount of honey over 44 pounds is needed and must be collected within a short window of time, 60 days. So that's a huge amount of pressure on a colony. Now to give you a clearer idea of just how much 44 pounds of honey is, it would fill a 14 quart or 16 litre bucket or about 50 of those squeezy bear shaped bottles of honey that you see at the grocery store. Now let's consider the work involved in converting nectar to honey. So nectar is usually on average about 40% sugar, whereas honey is 80%. So there's work involved in evaporating the nectar down into the correct sugar content that allows honey to be produced and then capped for storage without spoiling. And we can also look at just the sheer work of collecting nectar. So knowing that a foraging bee brings back a nectar load of 40 milligrams or 0.001 ounce, it would therefore take 50 million foraging trips to get that 44 pounds of honey. And think of that in just sheer miles flown. These are incredibly hardworking little insects. Now let's consider how much space is needed to store this amount of honey. So Seeley notes that 250 square centimetres of honeycomb is needed to store one kilogram of honey, or that's 18 square inches per one pound of honey. And 250 square centimetres of comb equals 0.9 litres of nest cavity space. So thus, 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of honey needs a nesting cavity of 18 litres or four gallons as a minimum. A larger space would allow more room for the brood nest as well as extra food storage. 
Early on in the human-honeybee relationship, we quickly figured out that if we keep bees in large hives, they will fill it with as much honey as they can. The average managed hive size is about 160 litres or 36 gallons, and that can lead to a honey crop of 100 kilograms or 200 pounds per hive. Aside from storing such a large amount of food for winter, the annual cycle of the honeybee is unique in other ways, such as brood rearing when it's still cold outside. After the winter solstice, as daylight hours begin to increase, the colony raises their core temperature to 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit in preparation to rear brood. It's cold outside, there could even be snow everywhere, and yet the bees are beginning to gear up to produce more bees. The queen begins to lay again. She uses the cells at the heart of the cluster and there's more empty cells now because they have gone through their honey storage. Now from egg to larva is three days. And at this point, workers feed the larva a protein rich food that is secreted from a gland in their heads. After three days of this protein-rich food, the larva is weaned off it and moved onto a mixture of honey and pollen, which is often called bee bread. Ten days after hatching from the egg, the bee larva has now grown large enough to almost fill its cell, and it spins a cocoon to begin the metamorphosis into an adult bee. It's at this stage that the worker bees will cap the cell, and this protects the delicate larva during this very critical period of development. After seven days, the metamorphosis is complete and the adult bee chews her way out of the cell and immediately joins the colony's workforce. As a fun side fact here, the newly emerged bee will actually neatly attach the chewed up pieces of wax from the cell capping to the edge of her empty cell so that it can be used to cap the next larva to grow in that cell, which is a nifty little bit of recycling. When brood rearing begins in midwinter, there's perhaps 100 or so cells containing brood. But by early spring, over a thousand cells hold developing bees, and the colony is growing rapidly, just in time to forage on the newly blooming flowers. By late spring, when the honeybee colony has grown to full size, about 20 to 30,000 bees, and have even begun to reproduce via swarming, most other insects are just starting to increase their activity. So we can see how all of this hard work, this unique cycle, this unique way of living is done because it boosts their success going into spring. This next section is called colony reproduction. Honeybee colonies are hermaphroditic. They contain both male and female reproductive parts or functions. And in this way, honeybee colonies are much like fruit trees with Seeley comparing them specifically to apple trees. And for those of us who just finished the Lives of Bees review, you'll be familiar with what's coming up here because Seeley repeats this comparison in that book. So consider the apple tree and the honeybee colony both produce male and female propagules. The male propagules are the drones and the pollen, and the female propagules are the queens and the egg cells. So pollen from one apple tree fertilizes the egg cells of another, just as drones from one colony will breed with a queen from another. 
Thus, trees and bees rely on cross-fertilisation to avoid inbreeding pitfalls and complications. The male reproductive parts of apple trees and honeybee colonies are simpler to produce and therefore cheaper, with thousands of drones and millions of pollen grains being dispersed every year. Now, any single drone or single pollen grain has an extremely low chance of reproductive success. So releasing all of these at once increases the overall chance of success. The female side of this process is more complicated and therefore expensive. And the queen bee is sent forth in a protective swarm, just as the egg cells, the seeds of the apple tree, are sent forth in the protective matrix of the apple fruit. A swarm and an apple are much larger and more costly than the drones and the pollen grains, and so fewer are created and released, usually less than four swarms in a year for a colony and a few hundred apples for an apple tree. But this costly protection and support structure offers a much greater chance of reproductive success despite the smaller numbers. And so the whole thing equals out with swarms and apple fruit matching the overall success of their more numerous male counterparts, the drones and the pollen. So now we move on to swarming. And most years, swarming starts after a few weeks of warm days and prolific flowering in the spring. In Ithaca, New York, Seeley's colonies send out drones in late April, with swarms cast a few weeks later. Seeley notes that he can predict when swarming will start by noting the weight of a hive that he keeps on a scale. When the steady decline in weight has stopped and starts to creep up again in the spring, this is when the colony will cast a swarm. Thus, swarming is time to allow build-up of the parent colony and enough time for the swarm to find a new nest site and prepare for winter. An early start is therefore extremely beneficial. Swarms cast late are much more likely to perish during winter due to lack of food stores. Even when ideal conditions are met, so an early start for the parent colony, early cast swarms, good forage available, etc., it's not uncommon for newly established colonies to fail during their first winter. Now, this was discussed in The Lives of Bees, and it's quickly summed up here. In the mid-1970s, Seeley followed the lives of several dozen wild honeybee colonies, and he learned that less than 25% of the new colonies survived to spring, compared to an 80% survival rate of established, so colonies older than one year. And we can see this summed up in an old beekeeper's rhyme. A swarm of bees in May is worth a load of hay. A swarm of bees in June is worth a silver spoon. A swarm in July isn't worth a fly. So you might be wondering, what exactly is the swarming process? Well, it starts with the colony raising 10 or more queens. The worker bees make special cells called queen cups that look like inverted bowls, and these are made on the bottom edge of the comb. After the mother queen lays an egg in these queen cups, the larvae inside them are fed protein-rich royal jelly to ensure their development into queens. So just to go back a second, earlier when we were talking about a worker's life cycle, there is a period of time where a worker larva is fed royal jelly, but it's then switched on to bee brood. For a queen 
or to produce a queen, this royal jelly, very protein-rich food is continued to be fed to the larva and that's what allows the full development into a queen. Now, Seely points out that it's still a mystery as to what exactly triggers a colony to rear queens in preparation for swarming. So we do know that certain conditions are seen before this process begins, such as a large population of worker bees, lots of brood with little space left for egg laying, the increase in food stores, lots of good forage and warm weather. But to quote Seely, to this day, no one knows what specific stimuli the worker bees are sensing and integrating when they make the critical decision to start the swarming process. Now, queen bees emerge after just 16 days. This is very fast development, and in part, it's due to that really rich food that they're fed in the form of royal jelly. When these daughter queens are developing in their cells, the mother queen is being prepared to fly. So when a mother queen or any queen is laying, she's not a good flyer. And as a side note here, if you're ever in your colony and you have, you've seen that there are eggs, you've seen that there's capped broods and something happens, let's say you annoy the queen and she seems to fly out. She probably hasn't gone far because she's just too heavy to fly long distance. And so it's always a good idea to look around the area carefully and if you can make it easier for her to get back to the hive you know leave the entrance open wide if you had an entrance reducer on or you could even put like a little two by four down let her crawl up it something like that but basically don't panic she's not flown away forever if you saw eggs in that hive because she's incapable of going that far away but back to our chapter So the daughter queens, they're developing and the mother queen, she needs to be made ready to fly. So how is this done? Basically, the worker bees put her on a diet. They feed her less and then they start exercising her. They grab hold of her and they shake her. They push her and they'll even lightly bite her. And this encourages her to keep walking around the hive. And because of all of this, she will lose 25% of her body weight and she will stop egg laying and her big abdomen will start to decrease in size. So the worker bees are basically making their mum get in peak flying condition, trimming her down and building her strength so she's capable of flying a longer distance. While the queen is being put through her paces, the majority of the worker bees are gorging themselves on honey. And if I could choose between the two, I would choose to be gorging on honey. Now, a study that dissected worker bees at this stage found that they had one to two drops of honey in their stomachs, which increases their body weight by 50%. So I know one to two drops doesn't sound like a lot, but they're actually increasing their body weight by as much as 50%. And this means that half of a swarm's total weight is made up of honey. The workers' wax glands also start to hypertrophy so this basically means that they go into overdrive they are preparing to build comb in their new nest and these wax glands are located on the ventral plates of four of the abdominal segments if you were to catch a worker bee at this stage of the pre-swarming process and gently turn her over you would actually see little flakes of wax beginning to poke out of these abdominal segments Now, at this stage, 
Worker bees display greater lethargy. You'll often find them resting on the comb or clustering outside the entrance. Jay Hosler, who is a biologist and comic book artist, calls this the calm before the swarm because biologists just love terrible puns. Just ask my husband. Now, while a lot of these worker bees are getting all logy and just lying around filled with honey, several dozen of the workers remain active. And these are the scout bees that search five kilometers or three miles around their current nest for a new home. In the summer of 2007, Seeley and one of his grad students, Juliana Kangal, learned that scout bees play a key role in triggering the moment of swarming. These bees are uniquely positioned to witness conditions inside and outside of the nest, which allows them to time their departure for optimal success. The time inside the nest allows them to learn when the developing queens have reached the pupil stage the capped cell stage. And their time outside means they know when the weather is optimal, so sunny, warm, not very much wind. And these things combined means that it's time to go. Now at this point, the scout bees will go to the cluster of sluggish bees at the entrance and they'll start scrambling all over their cooler sisters. Every few seconds, the scout bees press their thorax against one of the clustered bees and they activate their flight muscles, creating a piper sound, which is called worker piping. And this tells the bees it's time to start warming their flight muscles in preparation to leave. And as a side note, the flight ready temperature of flight muscles in honeybees is 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. This worker piping increases over the next hour and seems to galvanize her sister bees into action. When the scout bees sense that their sisters are ready, they start to perform a buzz run, which involves the scout bee running through the nest excitedly, buzzing in bursts and knocking into any sluggish bees. In response, nearly all the workers get excited and start running toward the entrance of the hive until they pour out and up into the air, pushing the mother queen out with them. This is the prime swarm, the first swarm of the year that leaves with the mother queen and consists of some 10,000 bees, which is about two thirds of the colony. This mass of bees fly around each other, forming a cloud about 10 to 20 metres or 30 to 60 foot across with the queen somewhere near the middle. They don't travel far on this first flight, however, coming to rest on a branch, tree, fence, post, etc. and gathering into a beard-shaped cluster. And this is the swarms that you'll probably get a phone call about. If anyone hears that you're a beekeeper or when people talk about finding a swarm, this is what they mean. They've come across this beard-shaped cluster of honeybees. Now, this swarm will rest here for a few hours to a few days while the scout bees search for a new nest site. Once the new nest site has been chosen, the scout bees again induce the swarm to fly and this time they go directly to the newly selected home. Meanwhile, back in the parental nest, one third of the original population remains with 12 or even more queen cells, thousands of brood and lots of food stores. For a short period of time, the colony is therefore without a queen, but because there are queens developing, the bees as a whole remain calm and continue to work effectively. 
during this queenless period, enough worker bees may emerge that the colony returns to full stride, full strides, full size and strength. If this happens before the first queen emerges, then workers will keep her away from her developing sisters so that she can't kill them. The workers will also refrain from chewing the wax cappings from the remaining queen cells, trapping the matriarchs inside, but continuing to feed them through a small hole that they create so that they don't perish. And all of this is done because virgin queens are murderous. The first queen to emerge will pipe, called tooting, by pressing her thorax to a surface and activating her flight muscles. In response, the queens in their cells will respond with a lower pitched quack and this informs the queen that she has lethal rivals. And it could be this that encourages the first queen to leave in a secondary swarm, often called an after swarm by beekeepers. Doing this does mean giving up the bounties of the parental nest, but it also decreases her chances of being murdered during a fight with her sister queens. So workers will shake the new queen in preparation for flight, and then they will leave on a warm and sunny day. And this process might be repeated with each emerging queen until the colony is no longer strong enough to cast further swarms. And at this point, workers will allow the remaining queens to emerge without interference. The first queen who comes out will murder her sisters in their beds by stinging them through the walls of their cell. If two queens come out at the exact same time, they will fight until one of them has perished. The victor queen will then inherit the parent nest. She'll take a few days to strengthen her exoskeleton and build her flight muscles, and then she'll go out on her mating flight before returning to the nest and beginning to lay. The virgin queens that left with the after swarms will go on their own mating flights only after a, new, after a new nest site has been located. No queen ever mates within her nest area. They always go on their flight. They go to these drone congregation areas. They do it with 20 to 30 males, get all the sperm they need for their lifetime, and then they return home to their nest never to leave again unless they go in a prime swarm. And that's it for the chapter. So next episode, I'll continue on with chapter three. I don't know if I can squeeze in four as well into one episode. It might end up being way too long. So let's just say chapter three for now. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, I know a lot of what has been covered today is likely already familiar to you, but I hope it wasn't too dull to hear it all over again. Um, we did go over a fair amount of this in much greater detail in the lives of bees, but it never really hurts to revisit things. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you'll join me in two weeks for the next chapter. And now I'd actually like to move to the part of the episode where I give some more personal updates. So this is the point where if you're not interested in hearing about sort of mental health or physical health stuff, you can switch off and go on about your day. And I thank you so much for listening. For those of you who stuck around, um, I actually don't have a huge amount of news this week, honestly. I've had some bad days over the holiday and it did hurt when I realized that my dad didn't even send a card this year. Uh, so I'm sort of wrestling with sort of the realization that that part of my life is now officially closed and behind me, but I'm wrestling with the emotional fallout. 
sort of on and off. Uh, some days I'm angry, other days I'm hurt. Sometimes I feel like a lost little child, but mainly I'm just disappointed. And honestly, I'm very used to feeling disappointed when it comes to my dad. So I think I will get through this um, relatively well. Um, I did want to say that Well, I wanted to give a huge thank you to everyone who's reached out with a comment or an email to say that they hear me or that they understand or that they also struggle with their own issues and they know where I'm coming from. Um, It's just really heartening to hear from people who appreciate my candor and I hope that in some way me sharing this demonstrates that it's not shameful to talk about mental health and if you feel alone you're not you're really not there's a lot of us we just not all of us have a podcast so um thank you so much I really really appreciate all my messages that I received you guys are just the best um I just I really hope that all of you who who do also struggle either with physical illnesses or mental health things such as depression anxiety or seasonal affective disorder you know I really hope you have a good support system and that you're taking care of yourselves um I will say that you know looking back to this time last year I had a much harder time with my seasonal depression it's not like this is a great winter for me but it is a big improvement and I'm super grateful for that it kind of gives me hope that I don't have to dread the winter as much as I have been. Um, I think I was a little scared after last winter that this was going to be really terrible. And I'm very relieved and grateful that it hasn't been. And I really hope that it's because of changes that I've made. (laughs) I hope that it is because of work that I've done, because that means that I can repeat it. So again, thank you all so much um I hope you're okay I hope you're taking care of yourselves you have a good support system you're reaching out and asking for help when you need it I'm still learning how to do that it's you know it's okay if you haven't figured it out and as I've said before it's okay to not be okay we're all just doing the best that we can and 2020 was kind of a (laughs) a but really so um I hope 2021 will be kinder to us all I hope you keep on commenting, you keep emailing, you know, I'm around, you can send me a message whenever. Um, And so really just thanks for sticking with me. I just, I really appreciate you all so much and please go out, take care of yourselves and as always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Take care guys, thanks so much, bye-bye.